0: So pray with me. Father God, we thank you that we can come into this room. We can sing your praises. We can even make declarations in the songs that we sing. We sang about how you adopted us and loved us. We sang about the uniqueness and the worthiness of Jesus. And we're going to talk, Father, now about following him faithfully and persevering in that. So we would need you to guide us and challenge us and strengthen us, even as we do this, help us to think with clarity and, and to hear from you, Father, through the power of your word and the work of your spirit. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews or you can read these words on the screen. Uh, we are going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. And um, it's this section that talks about Moses once again. It says by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. And by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Who is invisible? Come on, we're in church. It's Jesus. Yeah, there we go. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. We'll come back to parts of Hebrews in just a moment. The writer of Hebrews goes on to describe some other heroes, not just Moses and his parents and Moses himself, but some other heroes of the faith, people who just frankly persevered through thick and thin. These are people who would not quit in spite of all kinds of persecutions. People who said to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, no matter what God, no matter what the cost, I want your will. That's this list of people that's described by the writer of Hebrews. And then the writer of Hebrews addresses actually you and me in his letter, and this is what he says. He says, therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Would you say that's a good description of sin? Sin actually entangles us. It keeps us from going somewhere we need to go and from being someone we need to be. Um, Hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. There's that word again, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the glory set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding Your blood. The writer of Hebrews is actually saying to you and me, people who would read his letter, just keep running, keep going, don't quit no matter what, don't quit because Jesus didn't quit. That's the reasoning here in this passage. When you're running a race, the start is lots of fun. Uh, But what matters is not so much the start, it's that you finish or how you finish. Uh, This image of running a race is one that's actually kind of familiar in Scripture. Uh, it describes the life of a disciple, a man, a woman, a young person, an old person following Jesus, and uh, just kind of curious, how many of you have ever ran a race before? Quite a few of you, that's interesting. How many of you, when you were running a race, were tempted to quit? Anybody? Yeah, okay. They kind of go together, you know? I mean, you train and you prepare so that you can get through that temptation. Uh, I used to run for exercise. You can probably tell. Uh, Used to is the key phrase there. I used to run for exercise when Holly and I lived in Florida, nice and flat, and it was a great place to run. This was over 30 years ago. And actually, at that time, I ran a lot of 10K races and 15K races just for fun. Somebody here asked me one time, this many years ago, if I was interested in running the Boulder Boulder, right? And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know that I want to be around that many brave, skinny, motivated, masochistic, overachieving people. And I said, no, thank you. Uh, I think there's like 120,000 people or something who run that race. I mean, it's just amazing. That's a lot of people. The largest race I ever ran in was called the Heart Run. It was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, There were tens of thousands, I don't know, maybe there were 20,000 or something like that. And that was a lot of people running a race. Some of them were real characters. They dressed up in costumes. I remember there was a clown costume. There was even a centipede. There's like a group of, I don't know, 10 or 12 or so people, you know, all making a a centipede inside a costume. Uh, One guy was dressed as a flower. Uh, At the start of the race, everybody's laughing, everybody's shaking hands. The runners are getting loose and stretching. The gun goes off. And everything is just great at first. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. The runners feel loose, their blood is pumping, the muscles are working, right? Lungs are full of air, the head is clear, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, the fish are jumping, the cotton is high, and daddy's rich and mama's good looking. Everything is just wonderful. But it's actually, it's a very fun and pleasurable thing at the start of a race, it's kind of called the runner's high, some people refer to it. But how long that lasts depends entirely on how long or how hard you've trained. Uh, Because if you keep running, it eventually becomes work. And it gets harder. At some point, the muscles ache and your head might start to hurt and your lungs are burning. And the temptation's very real just to quit. It just is. It's called hitting the wall. And to keep running at that stage is the test of a true runner. It's the test of your conditioning. It's the test of all your preparation. Uh, clowns and centipedes and flowers don't usually make it beyond that point to tell you the truth Uh, it's just too hard it's too hard to keep going so whereas the race starts with thousands of runners roaring to go all bunched up and ready to stampede across that starting line at the finish line it's different often at the finish line it's just one at a time or or maybe two or three or four at a time, but it's not thousands (laughs) at a time. And the point is just this, the start of the race is fun, it's easy. Yes, everybody's excited to go, but finishing well, that's hard work. That's hard work. So this morning, I want to ask you the question, what does your spiritual race look like? And understand, this is the most important race you run. It's a race that's, that's actually connected to every other race you run. I could have asked this question in a number of different ways, but uh, I chose to say, how does your spiritual race look? What does it look like for you? Are you running well? Are you practicing the things that will enable you to finish this race, this most important race Well, we've been in weeks before talking about surrender, surrendering our lives to Jesus, what that looks like. Uh, We've talked about the importance of connecting, connecting with the Father, seeking His will, knowing it and then doing it. We've talked about the importance of worship, you know, doing this thing together, how important it is. We talked about the importance of making use of, of the Bible, something Christians call the Word of God. It's, it's right there. It's like a burning bush, only really it's more like a burning forest. Story after story after story after story about how God pursues us and loves us and adopts us and cares for us and wants to work in our lives. We talked about all of those things and making use of those tools so that we run our spiritual race well. How is your race going? That's what I want you to be thinking about as we move through this sermon the writer of Hebrews says, run with perseverance. It's his way of saying, don't stop. Keep going. This matters more than you know. And all of this brings us to our friend Moses, who we've been studying now for these weeks. We've seen already that God called Moses there in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, with a burning bush. Uh, this is long after Moses figures his race is done, it's over. Right. It didn't go well. He's hiding in the desert. Uh, He's a fugitive because he was a murderer. He missed his opportunity to serve and to lead. And all that's left for him is shepherding some sheep now, I think, is what Moses is thinking. And uh, we saw last week, Moses, when God calls him, does not want to go He objects five different times. He offers five different reasons why he's the wrong guy for this job. He's afraid in part that the Israelites won't listen to him when he gets there and when he confronts them and when he tells them God has sent him. That's one of Moses' big fears, big concerns. And then finally, in response to God's persistence, because as we saw last week, God is very persistent in this call. He's also very patient, but he's very persistent with Moses And he makes many promises to Moses. And in that context, Moses says, okay, okay, I'll go. And he's going to take along his brother Aaron, who's going to be a mouthpiece for him. And so we pick up the story at the end of Exodus, Exodus 4.29. It says, Moses and Aaron brought together all the leaders of the Israelites. So they've traveled now from Midian back to Egypt. And they gather all these elders together. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people. Remember the sign, the staff, throw it down, it becomes a snake. Remember the leprous hand, put it in your cloak. Oh, leprosy, put it back in. Oh, it's gone, right? And then if they don't believe that, God said, get some water out of the Nile, dump it on the ground, and it becomes what? It becomes blood. And so they performed the signs before the people, and they believed. Wow. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. They actually worshiped this God that Moses came to remind them about. Now, Moses must have breathed, I'm thinking, a huge sigh of relief here, because remember, his great fear is, what if they don't listen to me? What if they don't believe me? Remember, he wanted to know God's name. What if they asked me your name, God? But now he's done it. He's faced his worst fear, and the people believe him. The worst is over. It's just a matter now of visiting Pharaoh, performing a few miracles, leading the people out of Egypt. And the Israelites are with Moses because it says they believed, and they worshiped. Everything is going according to plan. You ever had a plan go well? Everything is going according to plan. How good is that? I'm such a good planner. I'm suspecting maybe Moses is thinking, you know, hey, this is great. Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert, says Charlton Heston. It's a great moment. <laughs> Way to go, Moses. Very bold, very challenging, very direct, right in Pharaoh's face, let my people go. The Pharaoh says, well, who is the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Uh Uh-oh. Pharaoh is not going to cooperate. And then they said, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. That's what Aaron and Moses said. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Notice There's kind of a change of tone here in these words. It's not quite as bold as what they were just saying. It's not the Lord says anymore. It's the God of the Hebrews. You understand? That is the way that Egyptians referred to this God that the Israelites claimed to follow. It's like he's a tribal God, the God of the Hebrews. Not an Egyptian God, but the God of the Israelites says, let my People go. Only it's not even quite let my people go anymore. They're really just saying, can we get a three day pass for the weekend? We'll be back on Monday. That's kind of what they're sa- it sounds like they're saying. Now, notice what Pharaoh does. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. Do you know where they were working? Ramses, they were working on the storage uh, cities there in this new city. And it says, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. And that is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So that they won't listen to Aaron. They won't listen to Moses. They won't have time for any nonsense like that is what Pharaoh is thinking. Pharaoh is not at all into servant leadership. Not one bit. He's not a people-empowering, collaborative leader kind of guy. He is not into the inverted pyramid model of leadership, you know, where the guy on top is actually the guy on the bottom. He is more into the original pyramid model because those were his pyramids, right? So so who is this Yahweh? Pharaoh is asking. I am who I am. The God of the Hebrews, this little tribal God. Surely no God that I need to be concerned about whatsoever, Pharaoh says, I'm not impressed, back to work, only we're going to make it harder now. You see, this is not what Moses expected. The plan had been working, kind of just what he thought might happen, that God would just cause this plan to work, things would unfold, they'd be in and out of Egypt in no time. And the Israelites probably too had thought, well, we might as well follow Moses. Maybe God did send him, seems that he has. I mean, look at that hand deal he's got, that's cool. What do we have to lose? We're already slaves. How could things get any worse? And then things get worse. And they don't like it. Not one bit. And uh, if this is hard for Moses, you know, the way Pharaoh responds to him, you can imagine how much harder it is for he and Aaron, the way God's people are going to respond to him when they get this news. Imagine the scenario for a moment. Put yourself in Moses' situation. You develop this This compelling vision, you go back and tell all the elders and all of the people about what God is going to do. It's a brilliant plan. You even got some miracles in there for spice. It's going to be awesome. You feel called of God and you start sharing your vision with the people around you and you gather this group. They want to follow. They're saying yes, but things don't go as you planned. And soon you realize it's going to take longer than you thought. Oops. And the challenge level is going to be higher than you imagined. And so even in challenging the people, you're going to be challenging them to do more than you originally thought. And then you run into a Pharaoh. And you have, no, you have no straw now with which to make bricks. Things just got way harder. And so you go back to this group of people that you've gathered and this amazing thing happens. They don't say thanks for leading us. They don't say thanks for coming up with this compelling and brilliant plan and these miracles you did, that was really cool. Uh, We knew there would be some roadblocks along the way, the Pharaoh's hardness of heart and stuff like that, but that's okay, we're with you. So, you know, Moses just keep challenging us. Keep helping us grow. We'll just roll up our sleeves and we'll make bricks without straw. You just keep leading us and we'll just keep following. Yeah, they don't do that. Uh, Moses' group of people, his flock, if you will, are pretty upset. Seems they don't want to make bricks without straw supplied to them. And they complain and they resist to Moses. This is what they say. May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses trusting following flock is gone it's now just Moses and Aaron they're alone uh, against uh, not only the Pharaoh but now even their own people who are quite reluctant to listen to them and to follow him Uh, it would be so tempting at this point I think for Moses to just quit and say back to Midian (laughs) this this went like I thought it would go it's not it's not good I don't want to be here Uh, there's a story that I think is hilarious um I heard another pastor tell this many years ago, and I think I probably told it here once, but so what, I'm gonna tell it again, it's hilarious. Any ever ever heard of old Mayor Daly, Richard Daly of Chicago? He was kind of a mafia boss kind of mayor is, is what he was like. And the story is this, um, he was a pretty difficult guy to work for, I guess. And uh, I guess one of his speech writers, his key speech writer came in to him and asked him for a raise, which he was not happy about in the least. And he said, I'm not gonna give you a raise, you're getting paid more than enough already, and it ought to be enough for you just to know that you're working for a great American hero. That's what he said to this speechwriter. End of conversation, right? Then the day came when he was on his way to deliver a speech to a convention of veterans, and his speech was gonna be covered nationally. One of the things that Mayor Daley was, I guess, famous for was that he didn't read his speeches before he gave them. He just trusted his speechwriters. Yeah, you see where this is going, right? <laughs> Yeah. So he got up, he's delivering his speech in front of this auditorium of veterans and reporters and so and he's saying, I'm concerned for you. I have a heart for you. This country needs to take better care of its veterans. So I am proposing a 17-point plan for the better care of veterans in our nation. And by this time, everybody there is pretty curious to know what this 17-point plan is gonna be. Even Mayor Daly is thinking, huh, I wonder what it's gonna be. He turns the page and he reads these words. You are on your own now, you great American hero. True story. And I'm, I'm guessing that's kind of the way Moses and Aaron felt, you know. They had listened to God, you could say with regards to Moses, rather reluctantly. And they start engaging the plan and working the plan. At first, it seems like it's going great. It's good speech he's given, right? And then, oh, my gosh. You're on your own now, you great American hero, right? He's all alone. Pharaoh's not going to listen. And the people of God are not going to listen. God calls him. Moses resists. God keeps calling him. Finally, he says, okay, God, uh, Moses goes to the people and looks like it's going well until he runs into the wall called Pharaoh. And now it's not looking so good. You're on your own now, Moses. Moses. Only, of course, he wasn't, was he? He really was not at all on his own. And here's the thing, neither are you or me. Not even in our darkest moments, the truth about anyone who follows Jesus is that even when you feel like you're on your own, you're not on your own. Nothing could be further from the truth. And there's a hinge to this story, and we're not gonna actually uh, read much more of the story, but there's a hinge to this whole story and it's in the very next verse right after where we stopped and it says this it says Moses returned to the Lord that's really the hinge Moses in a situation that's frustrating and confusing and so returns back to Yahweh the God who says his name is I am who I am I never change I'm always here I have a plan, and I have a purpose for you, Moses. God go, or Moses goes back to that God. And this time he laments to God. He says, oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all, which is true. He hadn't. Not yet. Moses prays a very honest prayer. And he's confused, we see that. He's frustrated, we see that. Maybe even a little angry. But the good thing is he takes all of that directly back to Yahweh. To this God who has introduced himself by name. To this God that he speaks with, talks with face to face. And God answers him It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Oh, God is saying, there's more to the plan than you understand, Moses. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Not because of some plan that looks like you might have formulated it, Moses. Not at all. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Therefore, say to the Israelites... I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. They're not going to follow. They're not going to listen. They're just upset. And then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, well, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? We're back to that speech thing we talked about. And now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So there's a conversation that goes on that we're not really told what's said. The Lord talks to Moses and to Aaron about the Pharaoh, and about the Israelites. And again, we don't know the details, but it had to do with something I'm sure of. Moses, you don't understand my plan. He's given them a glimpse of it. Uh, uh, With mighty deeds, mighty uh, things and miracles, I will bring my people out of Egypt. It's not gonna be your speech that's gonna matter, Moses. Your cleverness that's going to matter. None of that is going to matter. I will do this. Moses had to have been some part of the context of that conversation and then he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt I I can't help but notice that the the Lord is pretty relentless here in terms of what he tells Moses and Aaron to do because the plan isn't working the people are rebelling the Pharaoh says no and God keeps saying you go right back and you tell Pharaoh to let my people go God knows that Moses is confused. He knows that he's, uh, he's discouraged. He knows that Moses doesn't see the plan working, but God knows it will work. He's not overly concerned about Moses' confusion. He just keeps calling Moses, telling Moses again and again and again to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses, just keep running is what he's saying. Just keep going. Just trust me. Just do what I tell you to do. Now, That's all of the story of Moses we're going to look at. And I want to shift gears now to talk about two things by way of application for what we see happening here in our our text this morning. Something we need to do and something we need to remember. Are you with me so far? Okay. First thing, something we need to do. If you're going to finish your race well, if you're going to persevere, First, we've got to do what we see Moses doing in this text. Moses, despite all his personal deficiencies, and we've enumerated some of them, uh, despite all the difficulties and the obstacles that are now in front of him, persisted in taking these very things to God. How did he do that? Well, simple. Prayer. (laughs) He talked directly to God. God. He cultivated this practice, this thing of, of meeting face-to-face with God and talking to God. And that's what you and I have to cultivate as well. That's what we've got to do. Moses went back again and again to God, sometimes for guidance. Sometimes it was literally for food and water there in the wilderness. Other times it was for military victory. Opponents would come out and we'll actually look at an episode of this and they would would go to battle with the Israelites. Sometimes they would be badly outnumbered uh, or they would be outflanked uh, and they would go directly to God. Moses would go directly to God to ask for military victory and ask God to fight on their behalf. My point is just this. Moses gets a lot wrong, kind of like you and I would. I mean, at times he doesn't want to go. At times his faith wavers. At times he doubts. But he gets this one thing right. He just keeps turning back to God with whatever it is that's troubling him, that's confusing him, that's stumping him, that's stopping him. Um, He gets this one thing right. And the primary form that this kind of persistence takes is this thing of pursuing God in prayer. And Christian endurance, being a disciple, you know, persisting through difficulty or through hardship or in the midst of persecution or in times of confusion or in the midst of trial is actually no different today than it was in that day. A follower of Jesus, a disciple, practices bringing Whatever it is that stumps us, whatever it is that stops us, whatever it is that discourages us, bringing that to this wonderful God, this this God who says, I am who I am. Jesus, in fact, taught his disciples many, many centuries later to do exactly this thing. In the midst of trial, in the midst of confusion and circumstances or overwhelming obstacles, practice, he says, practice bringing these things to God in prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus says it's like the widow who needs justice, you know, from an adversary, from an opponent, somebody who's oppressing her. She goes to a judge who's thoroughly corrupt. And we just got to kind of play along with Jesus. I mean, you know, thank God we don't have corrupt officials or judges nowadays. But Jesus says this woman has no connections. She is not a somebody. She has no money. She can't bribe the judge. She would do that if she had the money, right? But she calls him, she emails him, she faxes him, she shows up in his courtroom. She drives him crazy to the point where this judge gets his people, his staff, whoever, to take care of this lady's problem so that she will get out of his hair and off his back. And then Jesus asks this question. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? And the answer, of course, is no. No, he's not going to do that. Not at all. God will listen and God will respond because our God cares deeply. Jesus tells a similar story in Luke uh, chapter 11. He says, it's like you have these friends who come to visit you from California and they arrive at your house and it's 12 midnight and they're starving. Do you have anything to eat? And all the stores are closed and you don't have what you need to feed them. So you go pound on the neighbor's door and you say, the Californians are here and I need some wheatgrass, chia seed and kale smoothies. I need it right now. <laughs> and your neighbor, of course, is quite upset. My whole family's in bed. What are you bothering me for? You're crazy. Go away. But you just keep pounding long enough. And Jesus says, your neighbor will give you what you need in order to handle that situation. And Jesus' point is that if you can persuade a corrupt judge and an angry neighbor to answer your pleas just by persisting, just by persisting, how hard do you think it will be to get God, who listens with infinite patience, who invites you and me to talk to him and to bring him our needs, and who longs to give you and me good things, things that are good for us, how hard do you think it would be to get God to give you what you need? That's what Jesus is saying. That's his argument. Now, if we're gonna be honest about this prayer thing, we've also gotta say this, and that is that sometimes we don't need what we think we need. You ever have a child ask for something they think they need, but you know they don't need it? Okay, you get that point. And sometimes, too, the gift that God wants us Uh, To have the gift that he gives us, uh, this is a gift we could call growth. And sometimes growth only comes from persevering through times that are difficult or confusing. Sometimes that's what God is up to as well. We don't always know. In fact, we rarely know. Um, And so this morning, as you think about the challenges in your life, we've all got them. There's nobody here without them. That situation... That circumstance, that need that you have, that thing that you're in bondage to that has just held you in its grip, that pattern of sinful behavior, that broken relationship, that financial need, whatever it is that weighs you down, that tempts you, causes you to want to quit, causes you to want to give in, causes you to lose hope, I would challenge you to commit relentlessly to bringing that very thing to God. I would challenge you to persevere in prayer around that. Morning, noon, at night, whenever it's troubling you, whenever it comes to mind, listen to Jesus about that. Don't stop praying. Talk to your heavenly father until you have his direction or until you have his counsel or until you have his provision or until you have his help or until you have his peace about it. That is what a disciple does. That was the model of Jesus in Jesus' life. And that is what a disciple does in following Jesus. We act like Jesus. Even if you you don't get the answer you want in the time frame That you want the Bible actually teaches that if we want to turn, if we excuse me, if we want to run and finish the race, we have got to endure and persevere through all kinds of different things in prayer. Persevere in prayer because what happens when we pray is, of course, we're running to God. We're doing what Moses did. We're returning to God. We're uh, recognizing that God is working some plan, one that we may not understand. Uh, One that we may not see, but we know that he loves us. We know that he cares. He's demonstrated that in many, many different ways. And so we know he is working. There have been times in in my life, times when I have been brought to the end of myself. I don't have an answer, a solution. Uh, It's an impasse. And I pray and I pray and I pray. And I see no clear answer. I experience no deliverance. Uh, I'm not seeing the answer that I want or that I think I need. And um, I'm praying about one of those things right now in my life. And the question at a moment like that, when you've been doing that for some time, is do I keep this up? (laughs) Is there any point? Uh, do I keep doing what Jesus tells me to do? Do I keep trusting? Do I keep bringing this thing up to God, praying for His will to be done, even even if He's not giving me what I want, even if He's not doing what um, I think needs to be done? Do I keep holding on? Do I believe He's still at work? Do I keep running? Do I keep believing that God is still at work and that my circumstances have a purpose that I can't see? There's a loaded question. And the answer is yes. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm not always supposed to know the whys and the wherefores or the wins. But the answer is yes. Keep taking whatever it is and go back to this God who cares. Now, this ties in closely with the second thing. Remember I said there's something we need to do, practice prayer, persistent prayer. And then there's uh, something, frankly, that we need to remember. Because this is the context, another context, another reason for why we do this. The writer of Hebrews tells us something very profound. It's actually something that we uh, see illustrated in the book of Job, if you've ever read that Old Testament book. The writer of Hebrews tells us that as we run our race, as we live our lives, as we make our choices, as we succeed and fail and everything in between and continue to follow Jesus, we do this, he says, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Did you notice that when we read that earlier? In other words, there are people and there are angels and oh yeah, by the way, there is Jesus and they are all watching us run. And the choices we make, they're watching the choices we make and the directions we take. They're, they're observing, do we go this way or do we go that way? And what that means is, is that what we do matters. And how we run matters. And how we finish matters. I mean, there are real things of importance always at stake. Even when we don't know it, always at stake in the races we run, always at stake in the decisions we make, always at stake with the priorities that we establish in our lives. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Jesus are always contesting and battling for the lives of people. And so, what we do always have I said that enough? always has more significance than we know. Always. Even the small things. How we live, how we love, how we serve, how we parent, the commitments that we make and whether we keep them, how we process difficulties, how we fight our battles and wrestle with the challenges, all of this always matters so much. And we either do these things in ways that honor Jesus, and sometimes that means we just keep doing them when we're not getting the result we want. We do these things as we faithfully follow Jesus. We do these things to give Jesus glory. We do these things just to advance his kingdom, or we don't. This is the life of a disciple. It was Moses' life. More importantly, it was Jesus' life. I mean, think about this. The life that he lived for you and for me. Jesus' race, you know, he ran a race too. It was a very interesting race. Talk about someone who uh, always brought his stuff, his difficulties, his challenges, his hardships, his decisions to the Father. That was Jesus. He was always doing this. He did it so much, in fact, that the disciples one time came to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray, you know, the way you pray? They had observed how Jesus would bring his stuff to the Father, always. I'm sure you remember, uh, just prior to his crucifixion, uh, we read that Jesus goes with his disciples out to a place and up on a uh, hilltop called the Garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, he tells them, sit here while I go over there and pray, is what he says to the bunch. But then he takes three of them. Uh, He takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled as well he might. I mean, he knows what's coming. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's an amazing, amazing thing for the son of God to say. He says, stay here and keep watch with me. What does he mean by keep watch? Keep look out. Okay, guys, Peter, James, John, you know, the others are over there. Would you guys just stay here and would you keep watch with me? Because I'm expecting something to happen. And then Jesus goes on over there to some little distance. says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He's talking about the cup of wrath, God's wrath. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you see how Jesus is holding on to the Father? He's taking his questions, his fear, his confusion directly to the Father. He doesn't run from the Father like many of us do when we're confused or when we're fearful. He runs to the Father. And it says, then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Wow, okay, big surprise. He says, could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray. Now he's inviting them. Don't just keep an eye out. Pray with me. Maybe that'll help you stay awake, he's thinking. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now, I hope you understand the the tension in this story because Jesus' people, his own people, are letting him down. People who should be there for him are letting him down. And it says, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. If there's no other way to get this job done, then may your will be done, father. He's saying, even if your will is going to be difficult, even if your will is going to cost me my life, I know that your will is better than my will, so may your will be done. And there's the big tension. We struggle often to believe that God's will is better than our will. There's example after example after example of this in the Bible, but for being honest, we really do struggle. I do struggle to believe that God's will is better than my will. Doing what He wants me to do is better than what I want to do. Having His priorities is really better than my priorities. I, I tend to not think that. But I'm crazy, you see. I think I'm God most of the time. Any of you have this problem, by the way? Just the pastor. Okay, yeah. You see, um, it strikes me in this prayer. Well, let, let's, let's finish this verse. It says Then Jesus returned to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed. So they weren't doing a good job of keeping watch because here come the betrayers into the hands. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It strikes me in all this that Jesus did not get the specifics of his prayer answered the way he wanted, which was for this cup to be taken from him. But nevertheless, he did get the Father's will. And that's what he wanted the most was the Father's will to be done. But having the Father's will be done cost him everything. But here's the thing, and we know this because of hindsight, we know this because of history, it cost him everything, but it achieved a great purpose. And as it turns out, it also brought Jesus, having the Father's will happen brought Jesus great joy, great honor, and great victory over the evil one, which was the main point. The writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, for Jesus, doing the Father's will cost him his life, yes, it was very costly to have the Father's will done, but it also resulted in great joy for Jesus, which I would point out is where doing God's will always leads ultimately. It leads to places of victory, places of great joy, places of great purpose. The writer of Hebrews says, in your struggle against sin, he's talking about you and me, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But Jesus did. That's the writer's point. It's marvelously ironic here that Jesus who would not let go of his heavenly father Even if it meant his death, Jesus who pursued the father in everything goes to the cross, dies there to pay for my sin and yours. And in that moment, he is forsaken. He is separated from the father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one thing that had never happened in all of eternity before and would never happen again. The father and the son separated, the son crucified, bearing sin. I mean, what a awful plan. That is an awful plan. What possible good could come of a plan so awful? A plan nobody understood, a plan nobody, not one person anticipated, a plan nobody wanted and nobody was willing to embrace except Jesus. What good would come of a plan like that? and we swallow hard and we realize my salvation. My sins forgiven. My reconciliation to the Father. The whole world reconciled and restored. That's what God's awful plan accomplished and so ultimately Moses the disciple learns to run to God in prayer even when he doesn't understand the plan and he remembers that he has this great cloud of witnesses watching him even Moses knew that back then this cloud of witnesses cheering him on to do what God told him to do, even if he didn't understand why. The greatest witness in this cloud of witnesses for Moses was Jesus. Isn't that weird? You'd think he wouldn't even know about Jesus. And he may not have known that name, the name Jesus, but he knew about Jesus. In Hebrews eleven twenty-six, 26, it says that, that he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ for the sake of god for the sake of messiah as of greater value than the treasures of egypt because he was going because he was looking ahead to his reward jesus was part of moses great cloud of witness jesus just like jesus is part of our great cloud of witness and i'll just leave you with this friends you got to remember that nobody runs alone not ever The race you're running right now, however good or however bad, however difficult, or if you're in an easy place, wow, that's great. The downhill sections are wonderful. But nobody ever runs alone, not ever. You have people watching you. You know, we we watch each other when we run, and we can encourage each other. But most importantly, Jesus is watching. And your race matters. We run with a great cloud of witnesses watching. So don't quit. Don't give up. Keep running. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that going way, way back to Moses, we see examples of somebody who had to run a race that he didn't always understand with a course. He didn't always know where it was leading. And Lord, he developed a pattern in his life of returning back to you and talking to you. God, may we too develop that same pattern. And that pattern has remained the same throughout the centuries. Even Jesus, Father, when confused, when facing his own death, he demonstrates the same pattern, bringing the things that were challenging him, the difficulties, even his death, bringing that to you and talking to you about it. And the pattern we see in your word in the Bible, Father, is simply that Every time somebody chooses to do your will, even when your will is costly, there are so many great and wonderful things, purposeful things achieved through it. God, help us to run our race trusting you, talking to you. Help us to finish well, to persevere, so that the will of Jesus the kingdom of Jesus would move forward in us and through us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.